Hello, friends, and welcome to the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for all of us who are looking for faith beyond the fences and the walls of the institutional church. Thank you so much for joining us. This is episode number 16 of the podcast. And today our guest is my friend Drew Willard. Drew is an accomplished artist and storyteller who I met at the Wild Goose Festival last year. And on this episode of the podcast, he's going to talk a little bit about how a storytelling approach to the Bible can help uncover meaning that we might miss by simply reading the words on the page. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation and the stories that Drew tells in this episode. So welcome to the Accidental Tomatoes podcast, Drew Willard. The Jewish community talks about the Bible is written in black fire and white fire, which means there's a story between the lines So we are uh, glad to have my friend Drew Willard joining us uh, on this episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. Drew and I met at the Wild Goose Festival um, last July, and uh, and Drew is a storyteller, and that's why I wanted to bring Drew onto the podcast for you all. Drew, um, not only a storyteller, but a pretty talented artist as well, and uh, I I just, um, Drew, I was really interested. We've had some conversations offline, and... um, I think I think this idea of storytelling really uh, is is a really good place for people to connect with scriptural stories, you know, in particular, but also just with with experience in life in general, right? That we we connect with stories, we connect with narratives all the time. Um, so why don't uh, before we kind of get into the storytelling part of our conversation, why don't you give us a little background about yourself? Um, you know, kind of the the condensed version, uh, and then we'll just kind of roll on forward. So. Yeah, so welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Joe. And uh, it's good to, to, to see you again. I'm a semi-retired United Church of Christ minister, and uh, I'm exploring uh, the possibilities of, of uh, art and story as a form of evangelism. And uh, the storytelling I've been doing, I would say, seriously story, doing storytelling and doing workshops since uh, 1987, and uh, when I first attended the Network of Biblical Storytellers Festival Gathering, and that's another event. Uh, if I'm not at the Wild Goose, I'm, I'm involved with, uh, with the Network of Biblical <laughs> Storytellers, and, uh, and that's where I first had a chance to, to uh, kind of uh, explore and, and, and try out uh, some stories. And follow up on some lessons I was learning at seminary. I was I was at Lancaster Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania at the time, a UCC seminary. And uh, one of the founders of, of the network uh, was a pastor there, was a, an instructor there. And so I attended this, this program and I thought, wow, uh, this is something I can do. I, and I was already experimenting with ideas about uh, the connections between stories. Uh, there's a resource we have called the Synoptic Gospel that shows all four Gospels in parallel. And it shows you the, the uh, uh, not only the, uh, the similarities and the differences uh, between how a particular text is, uh, but also what stories precede and what follow. So mm. it's it's getting past just memorizing a particular story, but seeing a context. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and that's something I'd like to share share with you in a in a bit here. Yeah, that'd be really awesome. I love what you're saying about um, the the fact that these stories, these biblical stories, exist in context. One of one of sort of my I don't know gripes, maybe <laughs> for for lack of a better term, with the way that that we've kind of done church. Um, traditionally, I guess, is, you know, in the Sunday school setting uh, with children, we children connect so quickly with these amazing stories. And so and so that's what we do with kids, right? We tell them the story of Noah's Ark, the story of um, 
you know, the story of Moses and the story of uh, the Exodus, you know, and all of those, the the narratives uh, around Samson, you know, like we tell these, these big epic stories, but we never connect the dots with the context anywhere along the line. And so, you know, you, you have to start with kids where you can start with kids. I understand that. They're not going to understand all of that con- contextual stuff all at once. But what I've noticed is we start that storytelling with kids in elementary school. And then as they grow older and more able to make those contextual connections, we never do it for them. And so I've, I've noticed even, you know, in the, in the short amount of time that I served as a pastor of a small United Methodist church, I had a lot of folks who were, you know, terrifically faithful people. Um, and I wouldn't call them uh, biblically illiterate by any stretch of the imagination, but they, they they knew the stories, but they didn't know the connection between the stories. They didn't know the context that drew those all together. So I really like what you're saying, you know, in terms of as as we learn how to tell stories, like what's the story that comes before? What's the story that comes after? How do how do we connect context? You know, that's sort of the the meat fibers, right, that we connect to the skeletons of these stories. There was something uh, that a Jesuit priest told me. He was one of our instructors at our Protestant seminary. And he said, be aware of the stories that come to you to tell. And as I had opportunities to tell stories, there were certain stories that that literally kind of uh, fit together over time. And uh, and now uh, I have done some harmonizing where I've linked stories from the different gospels. But I found that that uh, it, it works. It, uh, there's a set of stories I tell, I call it the prologue. And, and basically it describes how Jesus didn't just show up one day uh, doing miracles and uh, spouting platitudes, but he was somebody, who he was came out of conflict, that that brought out who he was, like gold yeah. and fire. And and these stories uh, set that up. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, uh, the two stories I'm going to share with you today uh, are an example of that. And and I think what that tells us, if when we when we do set a story to uh, uh, to memory and live with it for a while, uh, you. Um, you find the dramatic truths, the emotional truths that come out with the telling. Now, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, well, you're not supposed to put any emotion in it, just do a straight reading. But I think, I think really you got to experiment to figure out what that means for you. Yeah. And then you find out the character of Jesus includes anger, includes uh, humor, that he had a pretty wry sense of humor uh, in some ways. Uh, yeah. He had to do with, with those disciples, you know, are they going to get it, you know, kind of a thing. <laughs> and, uh, and so there's some fun things that come out of, out of uh, that. And I think uh, any interpretation, there, there's always some dangers of, of, uh, of twisting it to support what you want, okay? But I think if you look at it from, and if I use the word bias, it's in the terms of perspective. We all have a perspective. Right. And, and if, if that bias is towards what is loving, that that's always the right way. In fact, that's the key for even the hardest text in the Bible, of looking at it in a context of, of where is love at work in this? Now, it might seem mm. kind of tough with some of the, some of the texts in the Bible, but I find that that's actually a fairly consistent um, theme, yeah, and also way of of understanding the Bible. Uh, that uh, and just to kind of slide over into some, and I know what's what's kind of a touchy subject for uh, Methodists is the issue of gay rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a excellent resource by Walter Wink who I believe at one point was a Methodist. Yeah. I think he became brother. And Walter Wink, um, he wrote a pamphlet called Homosexuality and the Bible. And, and it boiled, he felt the argument boiled down to three texts that, that excluded criminality and this kind of thing. But, but what was regarding the behavior of, of adults? 
and in that that um, in that situation, and uh, there were two from Leviticus, which he just said, "Look, that was in the context of the the community in exile, right? And and there are things that we we do these days that they don't do, and vice versa." And then looking at Romans and the theme of that text, the first chapter uh, reference was about uh, the Apostle Paul saying, well, don't go against your nature. Well, Wink says that if we were all, if everybody was, was heterosexual, then yes, don't go against your nature. But if he knew what we know about our biology yeah. and psychology, he would say, LGBTQ people, don't go against your don't nature. Don't go against your nature. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, be, exactly. Be who you're going to be. And, and I think that's, that's the message. Uh, that's the challenge for us as, as human beings. And I believe to be a true Christian. Yeah. I love what you said about perspective there because, you know, we're fooling ourselves if we think that we're not bringing any interpretive lens to right. the way we read scripture, right? We, we have experiences and backgrounds, families of origin, you know, all of that stuff that informs our perspective will necessarily come with us into our reading of scripture. And so, you know, I, I don't know that you can even say there's any such thing as a plain reading of scripture. You know, we all have something, yeah. some interpretive lens. Now, we can teach ourselves and train ourselves how, you know, how to, how to, I guess, how to um, bring a certain interpretive lens to bear. A, a hermeneutic, you know, would be our, our $20 seminary word for that, right? Um, you know, and so, you know, for me, and it's funny, we, we just had Shane Claiborne uh, on the podcast. I just interviewed him. Uh. Um for the previous episode. And we were talking about how the Sermon on the Mount for me and for a lot of folks has become really, that's my interpretive lens for scripture. I, I do still bring all of my own baggage to it, but if I can, when I get into places of conflict, that's my, how, how do I see this passage through the lens that Jesus gives me in the Sermon on the Mount? Right. And yes. I'm not saying that's the only way to read the Bible. I'm not even saying that's the best way to read the Bible. For me, it's it's become a pretty faithful way, I think, of trying to read to read and to teach, right? To and to interpret. So, well, uh, one of the, the key points of the Sermon on the Mount is is the Golden Rule, which essentially is is uh, empathy, love, love for yes. your neighbor, and uh, and that that was, by the way, that was what what Wink found was that there is no consistent sexual ethic in the Bible because of the, the different cultural aspects of that era and how things change. But what is consistent is that there is a love ethic. Yes. Mutuality, yeah. respect, that that is, that is the very nature of God. Uh, one, of the, one of the discoveries, and it doesn't seem like it really should be a discovery, but uh, it was actually while I was on my sabbatical, I was visiting with Tom Boomershine, who was one of the founders of the Network of Biblical Storytellers. And while I was there, that's when our country pulled out of the Paris Accord. And I remember uh, really being alarmed at hearing that. And one of the concerns I had was, was uh, what was what is it like to be in a society where we may be heading towards something that is uh, on a par with, with an empire, with the Roman Empire? Yeah. And, and the, the uh, Gospel of Mark was written after the terrible uh, persecutions by Nero and, and where Peter and Paul were killed. They were, they were uh, killed along with other leaders of the church. And it struck me that the, the early church said, uh, we're losing our leaders, we're losing our eyewitnesses and our storytellers. We need to write this down. And so the gospel of Mark was written for the people of the future. Hmm. And that was the first gospel. Now, the others yeah. they all have their purpose in what they do, but 
the first gospel was was meant to preserve something. And what I believe that is, is the nature of God as demonstrated by the words and deeds of Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. And we have a sense of the character of God through his stories. I mean, that's certainly not the only reason, uh, or but, but that's, I think, a pretty significant one. And, and it is a mega story. It's like a, a mega myth, if you will. Right. That we can then, and, and I think through the storytelling, you see that Jesus struggled like we do. But he was also, he was a balanced human being that who he was came out with challenge. And he, he responded with courage. He was somebody who healed people. He was uh, funny, is brilliant. He, he uh, stood up to his enemies, but he also found ways to uh, overcome evil with good. You know, and that's that's something that we need to look at uh, for ideas now, as we yeah. are dealing with struggles. What are, what yeah, are some it's so, Yeah, it's so easy to to kind of collapse back into the cultural norms around us that are not based in love and nonviolence in the way of Jesus, and and Christianity has kind of found a way to to rationalize um, a culture of consumerism, a culture of violence. Yeah. You know, you know, when we look at like white nationalist kind of movements and how intricately a lot of that is tied up with, especially a lot of sort of white evangelical um, denominations and things um, that, that we've somehow taken this, this, beautiful message of love and nonviolence and compassion and mercy and justice and turned it into this sort of hyper individualistic, um, you know, winner take all kind of religion, you know, and and it, it doesn't make a lot of sense for a lot of us. Right. Um, And so that's, you know, to kind of transition, that's a big part of our audience for this podcast is folks who, kind of were done with that, right? That, you know, maybe he had, had grown up in or had been part of, you know, a, a religious institution of some kind, mostly evangelical Christian types of institutions, and have just, you know, they, they see the hypocrisy and have said, that's that's just not for me anymore. What I've found in conversation with a lot of folks who have left, you know, the institutional churches, they're still very interested in the person of Jesus and the way of Jesus, but it's just all of the the trappings of the institution that they've completely lost faith in. Um, and, and so you and I were kind of talking before we started recording about, you know, how, how important can it be that how, how can storytelling be a way to help folks stay connected with the way of Jesus, with the person of Jesus, with these really important, um, you know, this ethic of love that comes out of the scriptural narrative. How can, how can we stay connected with that even as we've lost faith in kind of institutional religion? Well, uh, it's certainly the foundation for, uh, for the worship experience. You know, the, the sermon is based on it. The, uh, the liturgy is built up to it. Uh, or some form of interpretation. So, so it is an important element of worship. It, it's it's uh, sitting around the fire. You know, people sitting around the fire yeah. and telling these stories. And uh, and why do we listen to stories? Um, I think to some extent, uh, a chaplain friend of mine. I was in the army at one point, and uh, a chaplain friend of mine said, "There's three purposes for for story." Um, for the lore of a community. And uh, uh, the first is stories tell us where we came from. The second is stories tell us who we are. They help define our character. And the third purpose is they guide us for the future, for the way ahead, that they serve as, as a guide. And uh, and I think when you think of, of movies or, or some story that, you know, you go to a movie and and uh, uh, like the you 
it's not just cheering for the hero, but but uh, you know you hope to learn something. I think mm-hmm. well, those movies you keep coming back to, you want to re-experience that, and I think that's the nature of these stories: is that there's something to be learned, something to be um, uh, incorporated, uh, embodied, even. Yeah, yeah. Well, so why don't um, why don't we talk about an example? Um, let's uh, let let me just kind of. Let you take the mic for a little bit and and do a little storytelling, and then after you're done, we can maybe unpack that a little bit and um, and see what we find. Well, I want to tell two stories together, and one is Luke four uh, verses sixteen to thirty, and the other is John chapter two verses one to eleven. So Jesus' rejection at Nazareth mm-hmm. and the wedding at Cana. Okay. Okay. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as it was his habit on the Sabbath day, he went to synagogue. And he got up to read publicly and was given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And unrolling the book, he happened to find the place where it is written. The spirit of the one who is God rests upon me. Anoint me to preach good news to poor people. I am sent to proclaim amnesty for captive people and the recovery of insight to proud blind people. I am sent to heal in order to forgive and to forgive in order to heal. I am sent to proclaim a year of reconciliation with the one who is God. And rolling up the scroll to give back to the attendant, Jesus sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were riveted upon him, and he began to say to them, Today these words are fulfilled as you hear them. But everyone was complimenting him, and amazed at the elegant words that proceeded from his mouth. Then they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, More than likely you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal thyself, and you will say what we heard did in Capernaum do here for your own people. I tell you the truth, no prophet is ever politically correct in one's own hometown. In all honesty, I say to you, there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah, when there was no rain for three and a half years, but there was a terrible famine throughout the land, yet he was sent to none of them except the woman who was widowed of Zarephath, of Sidon, of Lebanon. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, but none of them was healed except Naaman of Syria. All who heard this were outraged. They seized him and dragged him out of the synagogue to the very brow of the cliff in which the city was built. They meant to throw him head first over the side, but cutting through their midst, Jesus got away. There was a wedding in Cana of the Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus also was invited, along with some of his friends. When they ran out of wine, his mother said to him, They are out of wine. Jesus said to her, Ah, woman, mother, what do you want me to do about it? It doesn't seem to be the time for me to do this sort of thing. His mother said to the servants there, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, six carved stone jars were standing nearby, used for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding between 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them up. And he said, Now draw some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So they did it. When the master of ceremonies well, he's tasted the water, now supposedly changed the wine, and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who drew the water knew, the master of ceremony sent for the bridegroom, and he said, Most people serve the good wine first, and after everyone is drinking a lot, then the cheap stuff. But you are only just now starting to serve the best wine. Jesus performed his first symbolic act in Cana of the Galilee, and demonstrated his glorious sense of humor, and his friends were likewise transformed into disciples. 
I, I love how just here, I mean, I can see your screen, you know, because we're, we're doing this on a Zoom call when we, you know, the podcast itself will just be audio, but still the, the inflection, it adds so much to the telling of the story. We're so used to just reading those words kind of flat on a page without any emotion or uh, without any pace or, or all of the things that, you, you know, that you kind of have done with that. So talk for just a second, if you would, about why that's so important, right, to, to hear the story told that way and not just kind of read, you know, like flat from the page. What I think in those two stories, like linking them together, I, I tell, uh, when I was doing a wedding, I would tell the wedding at Tina at the end of the rehearsal, <laughs> and that was to calm everybody down. And I would, I would <laughs> I'd always get a laugh of, well, the cheap stuff, you know, and they'd get a kick out of that. But uh, when I tell it in conjunction with that text from Luke, what we hear is Jesus, it's not like, uh, I'm not yet ready to, you know, reveal myself, but rather it's in the context of he had this devastating rejection where they were trying to kill him. Mm. And and we think of any time that, that you've hit a brick wall in life and, and people have written you off, and it's that one person that says, you can do this. Yeah. And so it, it's, I think for, for people, they want to believe that Jesus always had his act together, was always cool under fire. But what if he was like us? What if it was more, more risky? And I think to, to see that, that Jesus, we see the example of somebody who is able to dig down and, and reach down into who he is to get back up. And that person who says, you know, I'm there for you. Here's the ball. Go. And, and I think that's uh, there's something of value with that. Um, yeah. So that so in telling it that way, now I can't say, well, if this is the way to do it. I think if I did that, that would be wrong. But I think if, if uh, again, operating from a bias, if you will, or perspective of, of how is love at work, that's never the wrong answer. That's, uh, you know, I think if we look at, at how, how scripture can be used to hammer people into you know, compliance, Mm, and that yeah. is not the way of of Christ of God. That the will of God is love, yeah. and and not just uh, not just um, an intangible thing or or a sentimental thing, but something that literally holds up under the worst conditions, and uh, and is how how. Uh, how it's always been. It's all, that's always been there for us to discover. Yeah. I, the other thing that I noticed and, and well, there are a couple of things and, and we'll, we'll see how one maybe comes from the other. I, I noticed you made a couple of really specific um, word choices in your storytelling. So where you said politically correct in that first story. And then in the second story, you said Jesus's sense of humor yeah. was on display. And neither of those are words, you know, that we see in, at least not in any of the the biblical, the interpretations that I've read before in any of the versions that I've read before. So, but, but I think they're legitimate choices, you know, when you read the text and when you see the context, but can you talk a little bit about how you make those kinds of choices when you're, when you're telling a story? Okay. Well, first of all, let me say that I was using the DWV. The Drew Willard <laughs> <Drew Willard's> version. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I think it was in the early 90s, I started doing my own translations and paraphrases. And initially, I used to look up every word and then string it back together and then just kind of uh, figure out what's, what's the best way to tell this. Uh, in more recent years, I've looked at what's called, an, I've used an interlinear mm -hmm. where... Uh, the hard work of finding root word meanings for the Greek or Hebrew, depending on the text, uh, that uh, I then take that word, decide if I'm going to keep that word or or what's a better way to say it, and then string it back together like like um, 
like a necklace even, um, and then polish it over time. So it's a paraphrase. It's a work mm-hmm. of art. So I right. can't claim it as, well, this is, you know, an authorized version, but it is the version according to Drew. <laughs> and, and so that's where I, I found some truth in, in how to say this. And again, I'm looking for what brings out uh, the, the, a more noble uh, interpretation of this, of, of Jesus. And I think one of the things, let me just say at this point, that uh, in, the, in the telling of the healing of the paralyzed person, Who's look? Well, they tear open a hole in the, the house and they lower down the stretcher, mm-hmm. and and then the, there are three uh, three religious experts, three scribes sitting there, and they say, uh, "What is this? This is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins if not God alone?" And instead of making the scribes or the Pharisees the bad guys, they're us too. Yeah, you know. And, and to say, well, yeah, there was the heart, you know, oh, this is wrong. And then there's a person who's afraid. And then there's a person who, well, wait a minute, what do, what do I, what do we think about this? And so, so those three voices are in that. And I think they can only come out with, with experimenting with how to say that. Now, and, yeah, and it again, really, it, and that, yeah, that, and that was the other point I wanted to make is it really humanizes the story, you know, the, the way you told the the wedding story, like it, it humanizes Jesus in a way that I don't think we often do um, very well. Anyhow, from our pulpits or in our Bible studies, um, you know, we we get we get into our exegesis and you know our analysis of the text and our critical historical, you know, all of that. So, which is all important, right? Um, but I think. I think we lose Jesus's humanity so often. Um, Richard Rohr says something to the effect of, you know, we we started to worship Jesus as a religion instead of following him uh, as a person that that demonstrates that God really is love, right? That's kind of a paraphrase of Rohr. But, you know, there's this notion that we we dehumanize Jesus um, by— by the way that we impose divinity on Jesus, you know, which is, which is not to say that Jesus is not both human and divine. I think, you know, we can subscribe to those doctrines, but, but I think in practical terms, we very often really only talk about Jesus as divine. And I love how that kind of storytelling approach allows us to see the humanity in Jesus. And as you just pointed out, the other characters in the story, right? Because we kind of otherize the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, you know, the, the interpreters of the law and all of those folks that, you know, they're, they're just the bad guys, you know, we put them all in black hats or, or red hats as the case may be. I don't know. That might be going a little too far, but, (laughs) but, you know, we lose their humanity and we forget that these were actual human beings living at a really specific place and time in human history. And so when we, when we, when we take the words off of the page and we tell the stories, I think it just makes, it makes Jesus more accessible. It makes the other characters more accessible. And, and I think then maybe it gives us a better way to relate to the theology that lies within the stories. Just, just to kind of to to add on to that is uh, a commitment to inclusive language. Yes, and yeah. One of the elements of that is um, uh, the the labels that we we use uh, to to make Jesus divine and then dismiss him. We can then ignore him because yeah. we can never be like that. Yes. But when you, uh, for example, uh, Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the one who descended from God. Jesus is the son of man. He is the one, uh, the true heir of humanity. And uh, in fact, I remember a phrase from, uh, I think it was Dances with Wolves. So I think you're on the path to be a true human being. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's the path of a true human being. The, uh, the heir of what it means to be human. That's who he is. Mm. That he shows us how to behave in the most dire and and also the most joyful circumstances. Yeah. Uh, another thing, uh, kind of a, a proof text for inclusive language, 
is that's that uh, phrase in when Jesus is, is responding to the synagogue, uh, those in the synagogue who were who were harsh to him, he says there were many widows in Israel, but then he talks about the woman who was widowed, and in the Revised Standard Version, it, it has that that word order. In other words, he took the point to say that that woman in in Lebanon, he unpacked the the casual dismissive term of widow. Yeah, and this is a woman who was widowed. This is a per, and so uh, we get into the PC stuff. That's really important. I know there's a lot of stuff. Oh, PC is so you know confusing or whatever. But but really, it's the idea of saying a person who is uh, challenged, for example, yeah. a person of color, a person, a person, to remember the personhood, and uh, and so I think that's uh, that's evident. And certainly in that particular story, and I think in terms of theology, it's that's exactly where God is coming from, challenging us to see the humanity of one another. And yeah, uh, and it and it kind of it it centers the voice of the marginalized and the oppressed when when you read it that way, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, what I want to say, I'll, I wanted to put a plug in for. Uh, I actually have a collection of my scripts and artwork, and it's uh, I had it published with Westpo, uh, which is affiliated with Zondervan, <laughs> <laughs> and it's called uh, Gospel Pilgrimage Stories, and, and so uh, so that's where I've, I've put the, those stories that have come to me over a period of time. And uh, I did a recitation at, uh, this is uh, when I was on my sabbatical in 2017. I went to one of my classmates from seminary, uh, her, her church in uh, Connecticut. And uh, uh, there were a number of, she, she's been there 30 years, and so she mentors women, women pastors uh, there in Connecticut uh, with the United Church of Christ. And uh, afterwards, afterwards, uh, my, my presentation, one of the one of the women pastors said, here you are, a man, and you're telling these stories about Jesus. Can a woman tell them with conviction? And I said, yes, of course. But that was like a question then that I began to carry with me on my sabbatical. And. And uh, I found I had an answer for it as I went along. Uh, and, and I could spend some time talking about that. Uh, uh, but uh, what I want to say is that I went to the Network of Biblical Storytellers Festival that year. And I posed that question to some women pastors and storytellers. They said, yes, of course, we tell those stories all the time. And then they told me the other stories they tell. Yeah, the daughters of Zelophehad, you know, and and then I thought maybe I'm asking the wrong question. Maybe it needs to be what are the stories that I need to tell or help get told in the mainstream that the women are telling that are significant to the women. Yeah, and you know what the the Jewish people. Oh, and that's that's another thing uh, with Jews. Judeans, I always use the word, uh, uh, I don't use the Jews, I'll use the Judeans if they're antagonistic or people who are Jewish or Jewish uh, people right. or whatever, uh, to make that distinction. But because they were all Jews in the, in the gospel stories. Yes, so, yeah. But to uh, to go to that, that point of, uh, uh, that, uh, of asking that question about... Uh, where what are those stories that, that need to be need to be uh, need to be shared need to be lifted up? Um, it's it's uh, the inclusiveness is calling us to go deeper, to not just settle for uh, you know flipping uh, he for she, but to dig down and say what is what is really what is really meant here. And the, the Jewish community talks about the Bible is written in black fire and white fire which means there's a story between the lines. And usually that's where 
where the women's story is, or people yeah. who are on the margins. And the best example for me is the story of Miriam, this, this, uh, the sister of Moses. And I learned about that when I did an evening of sacred storytelling with a Jewish storyteller and a Muslim storyteller. Nice. And, uh, and just a little side story about that. Uh, we had the altar set up with the prayer candles. Let's see, it was uh, the prayer candles, uh, two prayer candles for the Sabbath, and um, the Bible, and then the Quran. The Quran in an open, um, they were all they were open. And Emily Harris was about to light the candles, and and I thought that makes me think of the towers. 9-11. I said mm. that out loud. And the, my, my Muslim friend shuddered. And Emily went out from behind the altar table. I said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's not what we're about. We're not about... Um, what we're about is sharing each other's stories. And, and the way I happen to... I happen to have a video of... Orrin Lyons of the Iroquois uh, talking to Bill Moyers. And he said, and it just happened to happen, I showed that to my friends to kind of calm everybody down. And I had this, this clip. Uh, actually, it happened to be queued up. And, uh, uh, and Bill Moyers is talking with, with Orrin Lyons, who is a, a medicine keeper or a chief of the Onondaga of the Iroquois. And he was Saying, you know, I heard uh, Aborigines tell their creation story. Aborigines in Australia. And I said, you know, that's true. I believe that. And I heard the uh, the Dakota Sioux tell their story. I said, you know, the cre your creation story? Yeah, I believe that. Now listen to my story. And I said, that's what we are about. Mm, yeah. You can't correct somebody's family story. Right. You hear it for who they are, as they are being who they are and what they, their truth. And then you say, okay, I believe that. Now listen to my story. Yeah. You, know, you don't become with, you know, it's not, a, it's not about affiliation. It's about being who you're going to be. I think that's what, what it should mean to be a Christian. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you're really on to something there. And I think, you know, so much of what I think has honestly driven so many people away from the church is that tendency that we have had to impose our stories on others um, rather than be faithful listeners to other people's stories and and to let them center their own experiences. I, I think we can we can uh, there are things that are cruel and and uh, uh, what is cruel and inhuman or subhuman can be legitimately rejected. I, in fact, I, I characterize it as sadomasochism. That uh, uh, this is something Eric Fromm in The Art of Loving, a book he yeah. wrote, he was a psychotherapist, a Jewish psychotherapist. And he talks about sadomasochism in contrast with love. So we do have, we can tell, we can use that litmus test to tell if an organization or a community is unhealthy, or a healthy, healthy organization, and and apply that to our politics. Apply that to to any organization, to families even, and to say, is that are they operating out of coercion or are they operating out of mutuality and respect? You know, that's I think that's a, an example of how the Holy Spirit, yeah, is at work. Yeah, yeah. Perfect love casts out all fear, right? Yeah. And all of those control-based narratives are essentially fear-based narratives, right? We're, where we try to impose our stories on others. It's and, because and we're afraid to let them have their own story. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're you know, this is a really, uh, really challenging time for us, for us as a people, as individuals, and uh, uh, how we come to terms with that fear, you know, how do we find ways to allow love to work through us? And uh, we see, uh, you know, it's, it, for many people, it seems odd that staying home is a way to do that. 
but it's also being an empathy for those people who have to go out. Yeah. Who have to not only take care of people in the hospitals, but stock the shelves to be man, man the registers, you know, and, and how, how do we help each other in the midst of that? And, uh, you know, I think, I think we're really, it's a terrible time, but it, there, there's going to be gold that comes through just the same. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think that's going to be the interesting thing for, for those of us who are, you know, whatever leaders in, in, faith communities or whatever, um, to really be paying attention to those things, um, to, to try to, you know, spot, spot the trends of positivity where we can, and then figure out how we can capture the momentum that comes out of that. And, and again, I think a lot of that's going to depend on how we tell these stories, you know, when we, as we move further through it because we don't know how long any of this is going to last. Uh, and as we come out the other side of it, which we don't know what that's going to look like yet. Um, but I think it's going to be the, the stories that we tell ourselves about this experience are going to be really formative for who we are as a people going forward. Yeah. I, I think, uh, uh, for young, younger people who have are turning away from the church, uh, I've heard that uh, they are more involved with the self, referential story, their story, uh, the meta, the meta myth, the meta story. Mm-hmm. And, and so they're, they're not ready to listen to the mega myth, the mega right. story. But I think our, our own journey takes us just so far. And then we realize that we don't have to reinvent the wheel, you know, and we can find truth. We can, and certainly it's there in these Bible stories. Uh, it's certainly there in other wisdom traditions, but I think uh, the question is, who are you? You know, in the process, how, how yeah. does this story inform who you are, and uh, and and guide you? Yeah, and then and then to take it just maybe one step further, how does it inform who who I am, and then how does it also inform who I am as part of a community? Yeah, you know the 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 um, the African. Um, concept of Ubuntu that I am because we are right. I, my meaning as a, as an individual only holds meaning because I'm part of a community, um, which does not negate the importance of the individual. Uh, in fact, in my mind, it, it actually elevates the importance of the individual, but only in so much as the individual is willing to sacrifice for the good of the whole. Right. And, and then we see a convergence uh, with these, with these stories uh, as you said, Ubuntu and the, the idea of our fellowship. And you think of the name of God uh, that uh, was told to Moses. Uh, tell them, I am has sent you. I am that I am. Mm. I am that I am that you are too. That's yeah. what we have in fellowship with God. We can say, I am. Not in the, not in the enormity of, of what that means for God, but, but that piece of who we are, that, that image of God. Yeah. Yeah. That what you just said really gave me kind of a, an insight that I want to, I want to follow up on at at some point, maybe in a future conversation or, or maybe even just in my own studies, but in the gospel of John, Jesus's, I am statements, you know, I think so often we tend to exegete that, you know, to interpret that as Jesus claiming his divinity, but I think we might be wiser to see it as Jesus claiming his humanity. Uh, yeah. Deep, yes. deep stuff, deep talk on accidental tomatoes podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Unfortunately, go ahead. Go ahead. You were going to say something. Oh, I, I'm just, uh, this is wonderful. I, I, you know, when I went to seminary, I, one of my favorite things was going to the, the refectory after the first class or before chapel to hang out and have a cup of coffee and talk about things theological. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what did the, the Wizard of Oz do? Uh, 
uh, hobnob with my fellow wizards. <laughs> my, my favorite place to do that is around a campfire uh, <laughs> in the woods somewhere, you know, but yeah, I, it, there's a lot of value to it, you know, and um, it's, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you engaging this conversation here today. I wish we had a lot more time to just keep going, but unfortunately we are kind of coming to the end of uh, the end of the time that we've got here today. But um, before we, before we kind of end this thing, um, is there, is there somewhere online where people can find your work and where they can make contact with you um, on the internet or in, you know, in real life somehow. So. Oh, uh, let's see. I do have a, have a website that, that describes uh, uh, what I do. Uh, it's still elemental, but it does sh- say something about that. Uh, so uh, www.gospelpilgrimstoryteller.com. Uh, Dot com. Okay. <laughs> Gospel Dot Pilgrim org. Storyteller. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Uh, Google it and it'll show up. And I have, <laughs> I have a number of uh, YouTube stories online. To yeah. Check out. Yeah. I, I've watched some of those and, and really enjoy it. And that was actually, that was one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast because I'm just fascinated in uh, the way. And, and, you know, it's, I'm, I'm really glad that people got to hear you tell some stories on this podcast, but you know, the YouTube videos where you're in costume in several of those and it just brings another level of, of experience to the story. So, yeah, so I'll, we'll put a link to that on the, um, on the webpage when the podcast airs. And so people can find you that way. Um, and are, are, I know you're on Facebook. Are you on anywhere else on social media where people can find you or, uh, well, YouTube. Uh, okay. Yep. And, uh, uh, just that, that, uh, webs- that website. Okay. Very good. Very good. Well, thanks so much for taking some time out of your day and telling us some stories and telling us about stories. And um, I've already got in my mind some future conversations are starting to bubble. So maybe we'll have you back on again for a future episode. Joe, I'd love that. And I really appreciate talking with you. And uh, and thank you. Thank, Thank you so much. Um, all right, so that's it for our conversation with with Drew Willard, and uh, we're, we appreciate Drew. And again, we'll have some links to his uh, website and YouTube channel um, on the Accidental Tomatoes website as this episode airs. So that's it for episode number 16 of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Drew Willard and the stories that he has shared with us. Thanks again, Drew, for being part of the podcast. You can find more of Drew's work at gospelpilgrimstoryteller.com. As always, you can find Accidental Tomatoes online at accidentaltomatoes.com. And across the social media world, we are at Accidental Tomatoes. Please be sure to like and follow our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages for up-to-the-minute updates of what's going on in our community. You can find me, Joe Webb, at my website where I write a weekly blog. It is joewebwrites.com. And on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, I'm at joewebwrites. If you have any ideas or suggestions for future topics, For the podcast, I would love to hear from you. Again, you can reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email us at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That will help other people find us and connect with our community and participate in the conversation that we're having. And if you'd like to support the work we're doing at Accidental Tomatoes, you can donate through the Patreon channel, where your support helps us offset some of the expenses of producing content for our community. Just go to patreon.com slash accidentaltomatoes to learn more. So keep on growing outside the fences and join us next time for the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.